Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School Podcast for the week of March 23rd, 2023. I am here with Yaro Altunen the tech editor at no film school i'm here with uh screenwriter jason hillerman and filmmaker and podcast producer Gigi hawkins uh this week we're, we're talking about freelance brain we're talking about the ideation process we're talking about the film critics following up on last week's but now a new version of the film critic and we're following all of that up with ronin the new 40 flex which is a thing that we all knew they had to make and i'm so excited they finally made all that this week on the no film school podcast So the first thing we want to talk about this week is strategies for surviving freelance brain. What is freelance brain, you ask? So if you've mostly had it. Yeah, I do ask. Yeah. It's it's a little early and I have no idea what freelance brain is. We're recording the podcast super early. And I think before the coffee kicks in is one of the only times that freelance brain isn't overrunning us. So right now our oh, freelance brain. I disagree. Like, my I freelance think. brain murders me before oh. my coffee because it's like, why can't you do anything? Yeah. You should be doing stuff. You have to get your coffee going so you can get things going. Why are you looking at Mastodon go, go, when go. you could be going? So no, my freelance brain starts before my coffee. My coffee calms it. So freelance brain is a phenomenon where, you know, they, there's all this talk about work-life balance and they're always making this work-life balance argument for people who have like a Monday through Friday, nine to five. And it's like, you shouldn't be checking email at night or on weekends or yada, yada, yada. But the problem with all of the accumulated advice on work-life balance is it's all sort of designed for people with like a scheduled job. But if you work in entertainment, we are, like a nine to yeah, five, a nine to five, you know, Dolly Parton had that amazing song working nine to five. And then she came out recently mm-hmm. with a working five to nine. And it was like the only misstep in her career because everyone was like, no, Dolly, we shouldn't be encouraging people to work five to nine. People should be happy to leave work at five o'clock. And she sort of rolled it back. It was about second jobs and hustle, but it was like the first time I was ever. Was it a Squarespace ad? It was. was. It a Squarespace ad? And yes. it was like, no, yeah. Dolly, well, that, I always agree with you, but please, no, we don't want to encourage more of that. But if you work freelance, you are always, you know, people always used to be like, oh my God. So you, you make X amount of debt. You know, I'd be like getting to know someone new or like whatever. And they'd be like, oh, so you make X amount of debt. It must be great. Like in between gigs, you can like travel as much as you want. And I was like, well, no, because in between gigs, I'm desperately trying to book my next gig and I never know what it is. And I didn't take a vacation for like five years because like there would be a week or two in there. I wouldn't work, but that whole week or two, I wouldn't work would be sheet like trying to shake a tree to figure out what was coming next or trying to like prep a new thing or learn a new thing or like this constant, you you have to constantly work to stay ahead. Like when I think about what I knew about filmmaking when I got my MFA in 2005 versus today, I've learned so much in the last 18 years because you have to, to stay current and relevant. We make movies radically differently now than we did then. So like mm-hmm. freelance brain is that thing. We were just talking, you know, Someone on the podcast, I'm not going to say who, to protect personal privacy, someone's going on a vacation. And we were talking about how hard it is to truly 
truly go on vacation when you work freelance. I remember once pulling over at a rest stop in Missouri on a road trip because a client had texted me. And so I pulled over to check the email and there was a bunch of work to do. And it was a good rate. And it was like freelance color grading work. And so I sat in a rest stop in rural Missouri on this road trip and used their Wi-Fi and did a bunch of work for like four hours listening to the casino or like the whatever game area in this rest stop. They had great Wi-Fi at that rest stop. Shout out to you, loves. I love loves. And then I was back on the road. And like, that doesn't count as a, that's a much different road trip than like road trips I was on in the nineties where I wouldn't like respond to phone calls, emails or whatever for like a week at a time because I have freelance brain. Yeah. Yeah. And also this access that we have, you know, we can't, it's, it's this umbilical cord to work with our phones and all of that. And, you know, I've been, I do love what I do. I love writing. I love directing. So there's, there's that, that, so people sometimes like raise their eyebrows when they're like, what, you're going to go do work in a cafe in New Orleans. And I'm like, yeah, I found this amazing cafe and, and it's magical. And it's like bringing all this like creativity to me. But I do think that it's, uh, it's hard for me to turn off to the point that I never let myself rest, which also hinders, I think, creating and and hinders my work in the long run. Yeah, I think rest is the operative word there. You know, in the life we lead, vacations come few and far between. I think a, a true vacation means, you know, not responding to that email or not doing whatever. I was in Paso Robles a couple weekends ago for a birthday. And I literally remember like one of the freelancers of our group pulling over at a McDonald's on like the highway headed North to do work for a couple hours. And I was like, more power to you, you know, like, like we've all been there, but it, but it's it, some of it's this like hustle culture, right? When you work freelance and you have these side jobs, you want to be available all the time because the big fear, right. Is that a job will come while you're out of town, while you're on vacation, while your brain is turned off the big opportunity for you to break in, for you to make a connection for you to do whatever. So, uh, you know, then your body and your mind transform into the thing where it's like, well, I have to be on all the time. I have to respond to that email at two in the morning. I have to work through the weekend and do different things. It's funny. It's like the older I get, sometimes the more precious I am with like what I'm going to respond to and what I'm going to do. But I, I, I've never, ever even turned it off, even though like I'm on an assignment right now, I'm doing different things. Like I, for all intents and purposes, should be taking the next couple months just to focus on one thing. It's still like you have to accumulate the stuff. And you can feel a little bit like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, you know, where you're like, uh-huh. this is my precious and I need to have it on me at all times. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that changes, you know, like I, I was talking to a filmmaker a couple of weeks ago uh, and he was saying, you know, he was much more established and we were having coffee and he was basically saying, he's like, oh, it doesn't change. He's like, the stakes just get higher. And I was like, oh my God, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, he's like, I have, a, I have a couple kids. I have to do different things. He's like, yeah, I totally hear you. Like, that's a lot of pressure. But also for him, it's like, am I going to get this next big Sony movie? Am I going to do whatever? Like, you're still answering emails. You're still doing it. Um, it's just at a different level. And for him, he's like, you know, if I answer enough emails, then I might work for three years straight. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, it does become less, you know? And the vacations become different, apparently, because he was going on safari. But, you know. it's hard. I think it's the ultimate relatable thing that we all go through. And it's also what causes a lot of people to leave at some point, right? It's like every friend I have that left during the pandemic or did whatever, like the number one thing they said was just burn out from 
the, the hustle culture of LA of, of freelance brain taking over their time of being at home, being terrified of a you know virus sweeping the nation and also being like, but I need to be out mm-hmm. shooting to make sure I don't lose my clout. So, and not even like fake clout, like literally like industry, <laughs> if people forget your name, will they forget me forever? You know, it's that sort of inherent fear. It's also one of those things. First off, that's so interesting. First off, shout out to McDonald's. McDonald's has amazing Wi-Fi, <laughs> and I have worked Absolutely. in the parking lot of so <laughs> many McDonald's. I remember in two thousand nine, I was on, I was in Hawaii, and a client needed revisions on a bid, so I parked in the parking lot of McDonald's and like <laughs> redid the bid in a Maui McDonald's parking lot because I needed to redo the bid. The, I have really deeply mixed feelings about all this because like, I don't want this to be the case. Like there's this thing, apparently there's some companies in Japan that turn off the email servers when it's not nine to five, like emails can't be sent. And it's like, I have so much respect for that. I think that's amazing. On the flip side, there's a criticism of hustle culture comes up all the time where people make fun of like rise and grind and all that. And it's like, I think you're making fun of the wrong people because a lot of like, it's a survival technique. Like, I don't want this Mm -hmm. to be the culture that we have. I, I would far rather not do this, but I am trying to survive and thrive in a culture that I didn't dictate or build. And so it's one of those things of like, I don't think this is how it should be. And I, you know, I was very upfront. I'm working with a new person and I was very upfront with her when I was like, look, you're going to get emails from me before eight o'clock. I use the Gmail send later feature a lot, but, but if I forget mm-hmm. and you might get an email from me at five in the morning, I never expect you to ever check your email before 9am. It is just, I'm a parent and I will wake up and work before my daughter wakes up because I don't want to be checked out while she's awake, but I never expect a response. And so if you happen, like, don't even bother checking email until nine o'clock. That's totally fine. But like, it's a, like, I wish that that was like the default of the universe because we're all just trying to get by. And yeah, that's the thing is that like, I don't know how you changing culture is a thing I think about all the time of like, how do we change culture? Like, individual, like me individually saying to people I work with, I don't expect responses and always using the Gmail send later feature. So emails only arrive in business hours is an individual thing, but how do we change the overall culture of like the whole thing? Mm-hmm. I think you need like a pandemic to do it. You know, it didn't I, do I've it. been a it freelancer. Didn't do it. It. it didn't do it. It made, it made it so well, much well, worse. Let me, let me, <laughs> yeah. let me, me kind of, you know, uh, make my case, I yeah. guess. Uh, you know, I've been a freelancer for as long as I can remember. And I, I worked like, maybe a regular job back in college and it's like normal. And then all, for me, like this kind of schedule is like, Oh, you get a call at 10 PM. It's like, okay, well let me open up my email. Let me like, you know, see what the proof is or whatever. And in the pandemic, everybody went home, but still worked. And then when they didn't leave the office at you know five or six, they were still at home, which was their office now. And they were like, oh, well, I'll just do that extra email. I'll do that extra whatever, you know, whatever it is that they do. But in like that, you know, regular nine to five kind of environment. And I think people started to do and get freelance brain that normally aren't freelancers. And I think now it has this like weird global exposure. And everyone's like, oh, what about a four day work week? What about like, you know, work life balance? Now it's like a bigger conversation that is now bringing freelancers into the, into the fold, I think a little bit. And I think that's why it's changing because now it's a global issue. It's not just about, you know, people that are gig workers. So you think, they call entertainment folks, you so. think that it's one of those like, there's a, there's an expression for this that I can't remember right now, but like, let it get so bad so that it has to get good again. You have a sort of Ozymandias at the end of 
um, Watchmen take where you're like, no, let's let hustle culture get so awful for everybody. Non-freelancers are responding to emails at midnight too, so that they'll have to be a backlash. I'm not, a, I mean, you know, yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I see well, it. It's, it's like Rorsch, Rorschach's out, journal. You know, Yara was it. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, what's that? It's like, you're not stuck in here. No, I'm not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here. <laughs> That's the yeah. filmmakers yeah. telling everybody else yeah. in the world. I have a little anecdote about like sort of how like letting something get so bad that I had to change. And it happened in just the last couple of months. I switched from a Google Pixel with a crack in the screen to an iPhone and everyone celebrated. Like people were really angry at my green text. Like hostile towards me for years but I was like ha, ha ha I don't care and I switched and the phone like I I felt myself getting addicted to it and I felt it becoming this distraction thing and I felt it, it it's like candy and it's beautiful and I have a cool case and like the screen isn't cracked anymore and so now I like it, I guess this is protecting uh, the precious hours of like of writing that I do get when I do get it and I I have just started to turn it off and leave it at home and go to a cafe. And like, it forced me to, to take an action because I could see myself just like not functioning in a way that I was used to. And it, so, but it did get pretty bad. I was like, for, for a couple of weeks, I was like, couldn't put it down. It was, it was weird. And I knew it was happening and I'd look at it and I'd be like, I'm so cliche. There definitely is an addiction to the hustle. I think like that dopamine release when you get an email from a client or whatever, and you're like, I'm going to make money or I, you know, like whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, uh, even replying and they're like, great job. Um, <clears throat> you also have those crashes. Like I had to quit a job a couple weeks ago where like the people were calling me at like 8am on a Saturday to like do more work. And I was like, I'm not, oh you know, well, it was funny. You know, like, I think they were like shocked. I was, but like, it took me a decade to get to a place in my career where I could actually quit something. <laughs> so I don't think that's probably good. This is a this is the first gig I've ever quit, and and it was basically revolved around getting calls at like eight a.m. on Saturdays. <clears throat> to Glad you have boundaries. Yeah, once yeah, in a while. Again, it took me at twenty five. I never would have at thirty five. Uh, you yeah. know, with a second income because I'm married. Like I was like, ah, I could probably not do this one. Um, we don't need another car. But uh, <laughs> but you know, it is interesting. You know, I. I I think, I think Charles kind of hit the nail on the head when he was like, I think hustle culture is one of those things it's easy to dog on, but like when your life revolves around it, when you have to make money, when you have to come up with ideas, it it, it is, it's a scary thing. And it's sort of like this world built on fear inside the industry that I think like we're one of the only industries like that. And I think maybe the pandemic to Yara's point made a lot of other industries like that where it's like, Hey, we can run without Mm -hmm. you. And if you don't answer that call date, if you don't do whatever, um, you know, we don't, respect you or we'll get somebody else. And I think we're all trying to figure out like how this generation sets boundaries. I did read of not on no film school, but on uh, like Forbes that generation Z, whatever, the, whatever you wonderful young people are now is the best generation at setting boundaries, like way better than any other before. And fully the people who are like, I clock out at five, I'm not doing this. And um, that's hope for the future for me, because I do think the only way this changes uh, is that you have a generation that gets older not doing it and it slowly phases out because I don't think anything yeah. um, remotely is che- will ever change it for the fast uh, thing. And, you know, and hopefully technology scales with it and, and we get to that place because I do think that separation um, is good 
because of probably something else we'll talk about, which is like the less crazy work I'm stressed about doing, the better it is for me to come up with my movie and TV ideas. Like I think you can track every project I've ever sold to a point in my life where I had a break to think about it. You know, So um, I think that's probably pretty important. Yeah. Shower thoughts. It's almost like, <laughs> you're good. No, just shower thoughts. Like when you're yeah, not actively oh, thinking oh. about the thing, right? And your back, your brain can mm-hmm. apply its background processing to ideas. You're better off. Yeah, it's like you can do better work when you're present and healthy and not anxious and stressed. But it's all it's all about job security, you know. Like, how do you set boundaries with job security? Like. It's always going to be there in the back, you know, in the back of the room going like, hey, like, and that's why it takes 10 years. This is going to end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one thing that's super important, and I think Sally Krawcheck, who's like this, comes from the world of venture capitalism and started an investment company called Elvest that's typically geared towards women. But she talks a lot about like the tactical things about financial security as they apply to women because men invest more than women and uh, women uh, make, you know, 70%, 70 cents on the dollar for men, depending on your race. And it's worse for people of color and women of color. Um, and one of the things that she talks about that's fundamental when you start thinking about like financial security and building a career is building a an emergency fund uh, that will allow you to leave jobs that are abusive or pushing boundaries. And she says it's three months, three months runway. So you should have, and even if it's just putting away like 20 bucks uh, a month, like start building that nest egg for the time that you'll need the emergency fund and pretend that money doesn't exist. And that I think is, is something that can address the security element because you know, you have the option to leave. So you feel safe to set those boundaries. Um, I don't think we talk about money enough, period. The the problem with that, I remember when AOC was first going to Congress and she was like really trying to figure out, like publicly trying to figure out how to pay her rent. And everyone's like, whatever, you're 30. How come you don't have $10,000 saved? And she was like, because I've been a waitress and, you know, and then worked in politics. And like, I legitimately looking back, like I could have done a better job saving my 30s. I will say that in my 30s. I could not imagine saving any money in my twenties working as a freelancer. Like I just, there were so many months where like I booked the final money I needed to pay rent, like on the 28th and rent was due the 31st. And I was glad the check came the next day. And it was like, and that was so like, it is legitimately hard with our cost of living thing to like, imagine having saved any money. And like, you know, the, the, the advice of like, well, you should always have two months of cash reserves and savings to cover all your expenses. It's like, it's rare in life when you can, do that with our current like you know what a one bedroom is 1600 a month in la or new york now or like two grand a month or more it's like a hard thing but going back to what jason said i like the idea of a generational change because there's this shitty problem Mm -hmm. in humans where so many people are like well i did that so they should have to do it too and so there's so many people in power who are like well i worked 90 hour weeks and got yelled at by my boss so they should have to go through that as well and it's like a real like damaging habit in humanity that's very hard to break. But it's so true. I had a buddy who I might've told this story before was an assistant for a high powered person and missed a phone call from that person. And he was like, well, I'm sorry. I was in the shower. I called you back like 10 minutes later. And then like later that afternoon, a waterproof pager was delivered. So like 
the expectation being you have no reason to ever miss my call. I don't care if you're in a shower, you respond. And it's like, well, that level of like thing is generational. I'm sure that executive went through that when he was younger, although they might not have had waterproof pagers back then. But like the idea that Gen Z, and I'll say this, I've taught a lot of Gen Z students in some undergrad classes I've taught and they don't fuck around. They have much healthier boundaries. They are very like, they're very clear about like, I'm excited about the industry and I'm not interested in working 70 hour weeks to do it. I want to work in film. I want to work in film 40 hour weeks. Yeah. I know. I was just thinking, I'm like, they're going to save us from a lot of things. I love Gen Z. Yeah. Say your boundary. Even though right. I'm, please, <laughs> please <laughs> hurry. It'll be interesting. Yeah. You know, I think Gigi put it, put it in your crawl here to, we should do a money episode, just a full money episode. Yeah. What you get paid, how to save the mistakes we made. I'll talk for an hour and a half nonstop. Um, yeah. You know, one little rule I found for myself is that like film and TV work, I try and save 50% of it. Um, just because it so infrequently comes and it, and it feels like a reward. And then the rest of the freelance work, so like, com- like commercials, whatever, copywriting, that stuff, that's the money I live on. But again, it took like a full decade <laughs> of living paycheck to paycheck to find that other stuff. So, uh, you know, good luck to everybody out there. That's, I, I also want to say, if you're Gen Z listeners, no pressure. We just expect you to completely change the culture of our industry. <laughs> Thank you. And save the planet. Oh yeah, yeah that too. Keep, Good yeah, luck. Keep social security for us. Cause I, you know, I've been paying into it my whole life. I want to be there in four years when I'm old. So come on, Gen Z. <laughs> You've been paying into social security your whole life. I feel like there was like yeah, a decade of my life paycheck. where every job, I, there was like a decade of my life where I didn't get a single W2 paycheck where I'm sure I didn't pay into social security like one time for 10 years because yeah. everybody paid me 1099. That used to be a really bad thing in the film industry. We'll talk about 1099 and why it's it's in not the always the right thing in the money episode. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But now, oh, let's yeah. move to our second topic this week, <laughs> which is, other than Jason's trick of go on vacation and try not to think about it, uh, strategies for ideation. Although go on vacation and try not to think about it is a great ideation strategy. What are the techniques people have been using to ideate and generate sort of the beginning of a concept? Take a shower or go to the bathroom. <laughs> that's, that I door. feel like that's great. <laughs> two things you should Everybody be doing every day anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please do that. Please shower. Uh, yeah, isn't that like what where people get their best ideas? They're like, I'm you know, sitting on the can or in the shower and be like, oh, whoa, that thing. Like, that's the idea. And I, I, honestly, that's like where some of my best ideas come from. Or like going to bed and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to bed. I'm like, relax and everything's fine. I close my eyes and suddenly it's like, hey, that scene. That's yeah, how put you put a notebook it. next to your bed. Like, yeah, don't forget it. Yeah, and I have to yeah. wake up, like open up my notes and tap it in and... So much of ideation for me is that latent brain activity, right? So one big thing I do, which honestly has helped me 
more as an adult than I ever thought would, uh, is I love to clean the apartment. I love getting Windex or like a powerful cleaner called the pink stuff and putting it, I have like a, a drill with a cleaning thing on it and I'll like do the baseboards. And I think if you like give yourself an actual like chore that takes time and effort um, in the back of your mind, that creative space is resting. So whether or not you can afford to go on vacation or not, you're giving that whatever gray matter of vacation. And for me, it's like every big idea I have comes cleaning or every time I have a problem with whatever, it's like during while I'm giving the dog a bath, you know, it's something that I have to do with my hands. It's going uh, around, you know, I take a lot of walks as I have a dog. So like those sorts of things I always help with cleaning is my number one. Whenever somebody's like, I don't know what I should do in act two. I'm like, get a sponge, go to the dirtiest part of your apartment and just start cleaning. And by the time you're done, you'll either have the fix or you'll have a wonderful smelling looking apartment and uh, you know, and you'll be less frustrated. In a clean slate for, exactly. yeah. for a tackling. Than, I mean, that makes me feel, I, I feel often guilty for a, avoiding writing and, and, and I dabble in cleaning and, and now I'm like, Oh, I have permission now to do that. And it can be productive too, because I think like going back to, you know, freelance brain and addressing it like it's there there's a lot of guilt associated with not doing work and i think that like I, that that kind of helps smooth over the i'm not actively doing work on my computer but like trusting that there's something else subconsciously going on i for for ideas i get i get a lot of inspiration from like talking with people and hearing about stories in real life and this sound, this might sound weird and totally counterintuitive, and I don't know if it's a good idea. So um, I'm curious to hear everyone's thoughts. But I often attach onto a title, like I'm like, oh, murder podcast in what the hell is that? I don't know, but I love it. Or like I recently came up with an idea, and I was like, the assistant's assistant. And my partner, who's also a writer director, is like what does that even mean? And I'm like, but to me, it means so much. And like, that helps me start to compartmentalize and almost like, you know, mentally add little things to a bucket that I'll eventually explore down the line. But I like to like have a name of something and it could change down the line, but to have it be like a stake in the ground of like, I'm exploring this idea and I can start at collecting little yeah, things before I dig into the it. The title makes it real. It's a real thing now. It's not just an idea. It's a real thing. I think uh, a title is a great motivator for me. I always think it's like, okay, this is a title, but what's the story? And then I'll start working backwards. You know, like same deal. Last year I wrote a spec called Chuck, Mary, Kill. And I was like, that's what it is. And then you work your way backwards. Who's Chuck? Who's getting married? Who's being killed? You know, like bringing it, you know, working your way backward from that kind of stuff. So I think- anything- Can we drill into the, 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 what is the story thinking yeah. that you guys do? Yeah, what do so, you guys do? First off, I want to point out that Chuck, I want to watch Chuck Mary Kill. Like, I would really like to see that. So I hope that moves along. Secondly, like, Gigi, I wanted to point out that the thing that I liked about both of those titles, which is good, is the concept. You know, this is old screenwriting advice, but like, if you can put the concept in the title, it's going to make it like infinitely more saleable. And Assistance Assistant doesn't quite put the concept in the title, but like, Murder Podcast does. As soon as like, if I was doing a weekend read pile, as soon as I saw something of murder podcast, I know a tremendous amount about what I'm going to be seeing. And then your job as screenwriter is to make sure that there's surprises in there. So, you know, cause as soon as I see the titles murder podcast, I have a guess, 
of what I'm going to write is, you know, I'm going back 20 years to when I was writing coverage, but like when I wrote coverage, you read the title and you're like, I think I know what this is going to be. And so you're hoping there's some, some actual legit, legit twists. Cause I'm assuming it's going to turn out that the podcast is the murderer. The podcaster is the murderer. So I'm hoping there's something better than that. Yeah. What's um, the promise of the premise? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> some save the cat stuff for me, the, before we move on to like breaking the story necessarily, cause like there is that moment where you break the story. Cause you initially have ideas and ideas are every once in a while you have an idea and you're like, Oh, and then the twist is this, but often it's like a world or a title. But for me, my rhythm is write for a little while, run right for a little while. And I cannot tell you how great it feels when you're like running and ideas are churning and you're like pulling out your phone to take notes while you're running. And you're like, I can't wait to get back and write. And like, that is the, like, there is something about blood flowing to my brain. And like, it is often the most satisfying part of writing when like something is figured out in that cardio. And I'm not like a cardio fanatic, but like that rhythm in my morning is a really good one. Breaking the story is really tough because, you know, once you found a world you're interested in or characters you're interested in and like honestly like i it's super cliche but like once i've honed in on characters i really go back to like all right well what is the thing this character needs to learn and that ends up driving a lot of breaking the story and like it's really basic in 101 but like it is the thing that like will often drive me somewhere interesting right i do want to add my kind of version because it's a little different from what you you three are talking about um like this works during you know uh, the writing process like as i'm rewriting but really helps me form my foundation in the beginning i'll score my film and maybe that's you know my parents were were from you know the arts like they're my my dad was a musician my mom was is a ballerina um and for me, like I think in music, and so when I hear music, I'll see the scenes. And a lot of the movies that I that I've written, I'll I'll have like an entire score of whatever that kind of like brings the movie to life. And I'll listen to that throughout my, uh, me writing that that film. And what's interesting is it's not necessarily like oh, this is the music I'm going to use into it. It's going to be a vibe, uh, you know. Maybe it's in like a a certain um sets a certain mood for me as i write but what helps is there when when it works it creates anchors for certain scenes that just aren't like they're immovable That's they'll always cool. exist through every rewrite because they're like the the like just bring it back to save the cat the fun and games like you you don't you know you don't move those things too far from from where you initially wrote them and um the last kind of big thing that i wrote the last scene never changed from however many times i've rewritten everything else like this one piece of music it was um oh my god i forgot what the band was some weird niche band i'll find it and i'll i'll, I'll kind of circle back to it that like 10 minute scene five minute scene just never changed and it, I, I always knew where I was going and how to, and I, I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew where I needed to go. And I think for me, that's very powerful is like having those anchor points that ground me. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that I keep every idea in my brain or just in like a, I don't really, tr- I try not to put it on paper or in a computer unless I know how it ends. 
because I don't think it's like ready to take out of the oven yet. You know, it's like as soon as I write down like a first act, if I don't have an ending, I found it to be almost impossible to find it later. So then I've spent so much effort figuring out like, oh, what happens to the first 15 pages? It's like, okay, well, now you have no idea how it ends. So you've wasted that time. So if I know, like with Chuck, Mary Kill, I knew exactly how it ended before I sat down and wrote the words, Chuck, Mary Kill. And then I was like, okay, I know... And I know where I'm headed because if you have that destination, it's almost like the stuff before can change as much as you want, as long as you know you need to get to a certain place. And it's like, I knew what Chuck had to learn and I knew what the other characters had to learn and do whatever. So I do think that's a big part of it for me is just like knowing the ending, whether or not that ending sticks all the way through, I'm sure I could go back through and, and see, but I think nuances change certainly, but like with Chuck Mary kills a Christmas movie. So I knew like at the end I wanted there to be snowman and people to be opening presents and whatever. So it's like, if it ends on Christmas morning and it starts on Thanksgiving, here's what this story will be, you know, that sort of thing. So I remember yeah. reading a great piece of advice in a screenwriting book that said, if you're struggling between two or three ideas, focus on the one where you know the ending already yes, and go from yeah. there, yeah. which was in Jason's screenwriting book, <laughs> oh. which is great advice. I read your book. I, I read know, every... so Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think is helpful, you know, actually specifically for this project for formerly known as Murder Podcast, it has a new name now, Um, but I was moving from like an episodic, like a pilot to a feature and I've been workshopping it for the, the story for six months now since leaving the film independent lab, which was focused on episodic and the pitch. So I knew like the essence of the show and I and and then I knew what I wanted to take over into a movie but writing a movie is really hard I, I, I this isn't news I mean maybe this is breaking news to people because I used to think it was easy because it looked easy because it's so seamless when you're viewing it in its final form but recently I was able to like finally crack a version that felt true to what I was going for and it came from the opening image and the closing image like starting with, you know, something that feel that shows the character's journey. And those became my anchors. And it's interesting that we're all coming back to like, where's the, where's the character going and where are they starting? What's their problem? What's their solution? What's the first, what does this music, the score feel like here and how does it end here? And so like having those and being certain of those anchors, whatever they are, like the rest you can start to build from there if you have those. So um, you know, Jason Hellerman's book says it, says it perfectly, but having those in mind, like it helped me have, it was a guiding light in this writing process, which honestly has been pretty dark and rough the last couple of months. Writing without direction is the scariest thing for me. Just no matter how many scripts I I write, if I just sit down and don't know where I'm going, I, I know I'll never get there. And it's sort of like driving. If I don't have the maps up, I'm, I'm probably not going to arrive on time or ever at all. You know, I, I think that's why people look, there's, there's always someone out there who's like, I can't believe you sit and make a detailed beat sheet or I write a treatment or do whatever. And for me, it's like, yeah, I start with the title maybe in my brain, which happens nine times out of 10. Even the thing I'm working on now, title came first. Then it was like, okay, what's the final scene? And then I start working my way backwards through that sort of beat sheet of like, okay, like what, how can I open? Where am I going to take this? What are these, what's the midpoint? You know, I try to figure that out maybe second or third. And then it's, writing those beat sheets, which are available on nofilmscottstool.com. And I, I write a very long word document treatment. And then I take that treatment and I drop it in the final draft and I start putting slug lines in it for each scene that I think. And then I fill in the scenes that 
probably should be there. And then suddenly I'm filling out the dialogue and, you know, I have a movie or close to it. So it's, it's certainly like a weird process. And sometimes it goes fast. And sometimes it's a process that I start with and takes a couple of years where it's like, oh, I know the ending of this movie that I haven't had time to start or know where it's going or, or is it this even worth starting? But uh, I don't know if you can trust the process, right? And then also love the process. But, but uh, you know, don't sweat. If you can't think of a, an ending, go to the next idea. I, I do think it's like I have many titles I want to get out there <laughs> and I don't know if I have the endings to support them all. But that's sort of the you have a whole hopefully long life to do it. Um, you know, and unlike freelance brain, you can answer your own call at any time and not feel bad. You know, like if I come up with that ending in midnight, I'll sprint out to the living room and grab my little moleskin and jot it down or email it to myself from my bedside table. Uh, and I think those are the calls worth taking it to in the morning. Those are the emails worth sending to yourself in the morning. Um, so you don't forget them, but yeah, find that ending and then chase that idea as far as you can go. But also to add, you should have. A, a work-life balance? Yeah, a work-life balance with yourself, you know? But I think it's it's called, it's, I think it's called discipline when it comes to screenwriting. You know, like, don't write eight hours a day just because you think you'll get more pages out of it. Because honestly, like, after hour three, like, your quality goes down, regardless of who you are. You know, you can only do so many, so many creative hours in the day. So make sure you understand where that limit is for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I think that's great. So speaking of limits, Quentin Tarantino has set a limit on himself of exactly 10 feature films, which, you know, I respect boundaries. There's a there's a lot of great thinking that creativity really thrives within boundaries. And he's been very public in saying, I will make 10 movies and 10 movies only. There was some hope that the last one was going to be a Star Trek movie, which would have slapped, but it actually looks like now let's be clear. The world is changing. So does this mean he will never de- develop an episodic television sh- series later where there's like 22 hours of Tarantino stuff? Like, I don't, I don't think we can safely rule that out, but I, the, the, the 10th movie by Quentin Tarantino details are starting to leak out and it's called the critic or the film critic. And it is a seventies Hollywood like period film apparently at least partially inspired by Pauline Kael, which sounds amazing to me, but I'm a sucker for a Tarantino period film. I still think, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood is one of my favorite films of the last decade. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a gripping masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, I would love yeah. to have seen him make a, a sci-fi. I think that would have been really cool. Cause he's always like, you know, doing period films and, and, um, having his take on something that sci-fi would have been amazing. But maybe he'll just see if Quibi was still around, this would have been a good time for a Quibi joke. Like, oh, he's just going to move to Quibi and make like short form content for phones. I mean, I'm going to say it's... I mean, do you think he'll really do that? Like stay at 10 it's phones? It's always a good time for a Quibi joke. It is never a bad time for a Quibi joke. 
I will. Uh, you can uh, you can milk Quibi for infinity because of the one time David Geffen Geffen shushed my friend. Oh, no. oh yeah, I've told that story too many times on the podcast, so I'm not going to tell it again. But at the I'll go at back the Quibi launch, my friend was like talking, and he just walked up to her and went shh. Classic. And we thought yeah. like an announcement was going to happen, and then no announcement came. He just thought she was oh, talking oh, too no. loud. And I was like, this is like the most like bizarre moment of my life with billionaires. So yeah, mocking Quibi is super fun to me. But uh, no, I mean, I think he'll stick to it because he said it so publicly for a decade. And because like, I don't think he'll do a Quibi show, but like, could he do an eight part Netflix show? Could he do an eight? Like, I think there's a lot of variety there in his universe. And I think he cut up uh, Hateful Eight into four pieces for Netflix to do, you know, to like, and God damn it. I watched it and it was, it was great. Like it was, (laughs) I I thoroughly enjoyed all four of those exceptionally long, rich chapters. I I mean, the other thing is I'm kind of okay with him not doing the Star Trek in that I've never seen him play in other people's sandboxes. Like there are filmmakers who are really amazing at doing work in other, like Andor is like someone else's sandbox and like Andor blows my mind. I don't, the the vision of Tarantino is so unique. I, I think it would be hard to fit into the way I understand Star Trek. Although maybe he could do a Star Wars show. I'd be very interested to see a 10 episode Tarantino Star Wars show, but it's hard to picture it happening. It's hard for me to believe that he'll stick to 10 movies, but I do think he has said it for so long. I mean, someone tweeted yesterday, like a, a clip of him from 15 years ago being like, I'll probably clock out after 10. I think he was at six at that point, which, you know, probably felt ludicrous um, to hear at the time. But, uh, you know, I also think like that creative brain, I'm sure there'll be like an eight episode series. I know he's already developing one, right? We, we published out on no film school that he, he has one that he wants to do and he's putting that together. Um, yeah. All we know about this movie is that it's called the movie critic that takes place in the seventies that people think it's Pauline Kale. Of course, everyone's got their dream cast of who plays her and who possibly could play Warren Beatty. Cause as the story goes, Warren Beatty brought Pauline Kale into Hollywood to try and make a few things, you know, like we'll see if this is like a once upon the time, like uh, alternate universe with real people sort of thing, or if it's uh, just sort of slightly based on it, you know, with Tarantino, there's always some sort of genre twist. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited to s- to see what happens. And I think the person who's probably most excited is Samuel Jackson trying to figure out if he's going to be in that uh, final movie or not. He's, he made appearances in, in most or almost all the others. So you know, I'm sure he's uh chomper at the bit to get in there, but I mean, he could just digitally de-age the current Warren Beatty. Right. Warren Beatty's still alive. <laughs> he's still making Dick Tracy sequels. He could... I would love if he did that. <laughs> oh my gosh. That would be an all time crazy move. Um, well, I I'm thought he was, when I first heard it, I assumed he was adapting the TV show, The Critic, and he was going to get John Lovitz. And I was actually really excited for that take as well. But we can't get John everything we dream Lovitz. of. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not always possible. It's always interesting. We've heard the filmmakers going to retire stories so many times. Soderbergh, remember, famously retired and came back and I think has made like five or six movies since uh, Kevin Smith had that retirement sort of chat, came back and made more movies. I'm trying to think if there's any other Miyazaki. Yeah, Miyazaki. Yeah. So like there, we've heard it from big names. The reason I think Tarantino sticks to it is um, I do think he has this almost spooky religious view of film in a great way, right? In a way that yeah. we all appreciate. And I mm. think the way he respects, um, you know, all time masters who maybe didn't have the endings they wanted. Like if you look at Alfred Hitchcock, you know, uh, that's a guy who, who 
should be in the pantheon, Art you know, on, on the Mount Rushmore, pun intended, Alfred, of uh, filmmakers. <laughs> but, you know, that last decade was kind of rough aside from, um, I can't remember that movie about the uh, serial killer that chokes people. Actually, Frenzy. I really like that one. But like it, it was like sort of a diminishing return thing. And he ended with a TV movie, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think Tarantino would never be in that situation. But it is like, hey, if I make 10 great ones, is that better than making uh, 20 with 10 mediocre ones? It'll, it'll be interesting. Right, you know, I, right. I think he's also a dad now. I'm sure that that factors into it you know, like raising your kid, doing whatever. And we've seen that happen with various stars throughout their careers. You know, I think Cary Grant notably had a kid later in life and sort of started taking a step away from the limelight. So yeah, I'm, I'm I excited. I do think he yeah. has that macro sort of like, look at my legacy thing. I think everyone else just needed a vacation and they got one and then they're like, I got to get back into this. This is yeah, I mean, he's off like living in Israel doing something. You know, I, I do think he he is the ultimate artist where he can step away. He's not going to do like uh, be Godard and be a hundred and still making movie. You know, making his hundredth movie. Well, uh, except on the flip but, side, Godard retired on his own terms. Right. I mean, Godard took assisted suicide. He said, "You know what, guys, I'm done, and I I officially announced my last movie, and I've completed my oeuvre, and I am out on." Like, no, like there is no return of Godard being like, psych, I actually made some more movies because, you know, he, he like, yeah, I would be surprised also because I think one thing, one thing Tarantino has always been smart about is the circumstances in which movies are able to get made. And I think he is always smart to recognize, I think he is as much as anybody you know, smartly able to recognize that you have a period of peak, not just like creative power where you're in touch with your culture, but creative power in terms of like, Tarantino is probably the only person right now who can just be like, I'm going to write whatever the fuck I want and it'll get financed by a studio and get made. You know, like you hear Spielberg bitching about financing movies in interviews. And I'm like, well, that, that's Steven Spielberg. And it took him how long to get that thing financed? Yeah, t- I think truly it's Tarantino and maybe Christopher Nolan just because he has yeah. people big pockets but yeah they are tr- like at this point the only two and tarantino i think is probably ahead of nolan in terms of immediate financing where nolan still has to be like hey this is a commercial movie sure but in the last 120 years of cinema there's usually been three or four people who could do that and it's always passed and i think tarantino's appreciation of cinema history is enough to recognize that he's like oh there was a period in the 90s where everything clint eastwood directed was immediately financed clint eastwood might still be immediate financing now just because he has a built-in audience but I, th- Maybe I think sub 25. He, yeah. But yeah. yeah. It, um, but I think, but there's like, I think he's smart enough to recognize that in 10 years, he might not still be in that position just because that position right. doesn't last for, if that position didn't last for Spielberg and like none of his movies have flopped. It's just that right. position doesn't last. And I think he's smart enough to recognize that there are compromises involved in those later projects that it's not just about, I've lost touch with the culture because I don't think Tarantino would ever lose touch with the culture because he's so obsessed with the culture. Great culture. Yeah. He, yeah. The imitators of Tarantino are legion. But I think he, I don't know, there's like a reality to the arc of your ability to bend capitalism to your will. That's maybe the most beautiful way I've heard it put. So, <laughs> yeah. I want to say that he, he feels like he's playing the long con. You know, he's going to be, I'm done after 10. And then, Four years later, he's like, I got 11. And then everyone's just going to be like rushing with their, you know, checkbooks and 
bags of money towards his hotel room. I can room. see it 10 years maybe. Uh, he did 10 and, and then 10 years later he comes back for 11. There's got to be some sort of poetry yeah. there, but I don't know. Yeah. He, I do think he sees the writing on the wall with the way Hollywood's going and, you know, these big tech that's in charge of it and Silicon Valley buying studios and Definitely. prioritizing things. Like, he's never going to be someone who capitulates to the, the man, if you will. And I just, uh, I don't, I, I could imagine an well, amazing movie trailer for the return of Tarantino yeah. in 10 years with the like rumors of my uh, death demise. have been exaggerated. Yeah. yeah demise has <laughs> been exaggerated. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I could see that. That would make a really great trailer. I hope I live to see it off. <laughs> All right. And then last up this week, DJI, DJI made this camera, the 4d that it came out a year and a half ago. I love it. For some reason, nobody else seems to love it. I don't. Cause it's not a camera though. Is it? It's, it's like a, can you know what it reminds me of? I, I have to say this because uh, I, I, I hope hopefully people remember this this bit from what ten years ago now, uh, the chicken stabilizer. <laughs> I Do don't know, know what about? it is, but I so the love the it. chicken stabilizer was a bit from you know when like people wanted to start stabilizing their like DSLRs, where you know instead of a Steadicam you get chicken, you tape a camera to it to its head like you put a little helmet on it and tape a camera to the helmet and then you'd run with the chicken and because they have like really good like stabilization their neck their head stays at like a singular point while oh, their yeah. body's going yeah and oh, so I know my mom has chickens so <laughs> yeah I've seen so, this stable chicken effect. that was the joke it's like you know why get a stabilizer when you can get a chicken and um, you can find on YouTube, I'm sure. Just just go and, and uh, look at you, or chicken stabilizer on YouTube. But the Ronin 4D looks like a chicken. Good. I, I love that they turned a meme into a camera. And it's it's one. So it's a stabilizer camera combo. Like the stabilizer is mm-hmm. built into the thing. There's like a body that has your recording IO and everything. And then the stabilizer head. And, you know, it has its limitations. Like you can't fit every lens in the world as like a two pound lens limit. So you're not going to go out and put like seven pound master primes on it. But like until now, uh, no, the stabilizer, even with the flex, the head can't support the extra weight because the arm doesn't counterbalance. Well, I feel like uh, there's this, uh, what was it? It was the quick, quick lock. They have a quick lock thing where you basically lock the gimbal. So you're basically turning it into just a, a regular camera yeah. at that point, but you then can put the zoom on there. Yeah, yeah. If you know, the, well, the and, you know, 20 pound Panavision lens, but they also, they have like, guys, there's a lot of great lenses under two pounds. Uh, I even mm-hmm. did a video a year ago for YouTube of what lenses should you shoot on the 4d where I shot like everything you could possibly shoot on the 4d and it was super fun. And there's a lot of great things you can shoot on the 4d. So, um, but anyway, they find, they did a thing that we all knew they were going to do, which is they allowed you to take the gimbal off the base the base has like the recording unit and like the IO to put in your audio and like your monitoring tools and everything. And they made a cable called the flex cable that allows you to now have the gimbal in your hands and the camera in your backpack. And like it, like for a lot of the work you do with this camera, it's going to be legitimately great. Cause now you can put like the whole gimbal thing, like on a car mount or on a bike mount or on a helmet mount. And you just have the camera body stored somewhere else. And it's going to be great. Sony's always been really um, great with this. The Venice 2 as the Rialto system. But Sony's been doing this at least since the F950, which came out after the F900 and allowed the imager block to split off. Because everything opens up when you have like the imager in one place and then like only one cable running to the body. 
we like as soon as you saw the 4D, you were like, ah, oh, you guys have totally got to do a cable. It's interesting. It took a year and a half. I wasn't expecting it to take that long, actually. But I think, you know, it's weird. I don't know why this camera wasn't a hit. I know it looks weird, but it's so cool. And I love shooting with it so much. And I think maybe the accessories are slower to come because it wasn't the hit they thought it was going to be. Possibly. I mean, it looks it looks weird. Yeah, but it has a lot of functionality. But I think maybe people are scared of it because it feels like it's trying to do too much. You know, you have a tool that's like a Swiss Army knife and you're like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, build a shed. And instead of using a Swiss Army knife, Swiss Army knife, you want dedicated tools. You know, you want the, the screwdriver, the hammer, you know, the, the drill. Because while the Swiss Army knife can do all three, maybe, it doesn't do them well. And maybe that's the fear that people had because it's such a weird tool. And, and I think when you do something new, it takes a while to break tradition and muscle memory right yeah i mean i think back to the red actually and i remember when red one first came out i had a similar feeling of like oh you fuckers you did it you did the thing like you did a thing that that is like a step forward because you know when red one first came out we were all stuck with these cameras that like were all backwards compatible to tape and so they were shooting 1080 and it wasn't to files and then red was like nah 4k raw everything and yeah, it did take a couple of years where like a couple of people I knew were shooting the original red one, but a lot of people were like, what is that? And yeah, I think maybe there is a little Overton window thing where a lot of people are like, what, what, which is so funny. I mean, obviously I do a lot of bicycle work. I think bicycles are the best invention in the universe and our best way to fight climate change and like e-bike stuff. So like I was primed that when the camera came out, I was like, oh, you motherfuckers, you've built the thing I desperately need. And I, yeah, I guess if you're like in a very traditional workflow, you might not necessarily, if it doesn't fix a pain point in your workflow, you might not be as excited by it. That's fair. I see that. But guys, everybody give it a second look. It slaps. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely check it out. At least for, you know, not your everyday workflow, but definitely for those unique you know, I need to move the camera moments. I remember when the Flex was announced and we saw the the promotional material from DJI. It, it, you know, they had it on like a, a, just a boom pole because it was so tiny, the, the gimbal head part with the camera. And they would put it under a car through a window. And, you know, like I think the, the clearance for how much space you need is like 17 centimeters, which is uh, my conversion is really bad. Yeah. Uh, if anybody knows what that is, please tell me. Um, I have a uh, like you can. I have a charters pole, which is like this twenty-five foot carbon fiber pole that I put a DJI Osmo on all the time because it's like a twenty-five foot crane that you can just do, do Osmo shots with. But the Osmo image quality is not as great. And the next, I'm desperate to try like with a flex. Can the charters pole yeah. hold this so I can actually do like beautiful six K shots with a nice lens where I just do a twenty-five foot crane that like I hold with my hands. I I think you're you're definitely going to have good results. I think the limiting factor right now is the the cord length cuz right now it's only 2 meters which is 6 feet roughly where I believe the Rialto from Sony is 6 meters. Yeah. So like you know 
you're still going to be lugging around that kind of, you know, boom box of a body, which isn't necessarily bad, but now you have to think about rigging that. And hopefully, you know, with future developments, they'll have, you know, a six, six meter cable, then you can put it wherever you want the box. And then you're free to run around with the gimbal and camera, but uh, definitely a really cool tool for a lot of really cool, unique opportunities to, to switch up your composition. But also I think it's, it's affordable. You know, you can pay for the camera, for the flex system, get the DJI LiDAR system, and be a solo shooter for under 10K, where the Rialto system is, you know, the price of a small sedan. The camera is, you know, the price of a of a house in the Midwest. Well, maybe not, maybe not in the house, but like an <laughs> a apartment nice in the Midwest. duplex in yeah. the Midwest. Yeah, like a condo. So... I, I I think the next frontier for technology, and I'll always repeat this, and I'm always going to hound every company f- uh, for this, is affordability. Like That has to be the next frontier because all of this technology was you know, behind a, a financial gate for a lot of filmmakers. And yeah, you could like go to Panavision and go to Airy and you know, use their like grant programs and get gear for free, but you know, it, it required so much prep work to get your project there and then maybe you won't even get the gear when you know what if i just want to go out and like shoot a short film with my friends in the woods on a weekend like you know uh, i can't bring a sony venice or an airy but i can bring you know a dji ronin and that's like all those unique movements are now available to the weekend crew that the Sony Rialto, you know, only had the opportunity to give. Yeah, no, I agree. I love that this stuff is coming in at price points where indies can get to it. All right. We've got articles about all this stuff and more at nofilmschool.com. Check it out. And um, you can find me on the YouTubes. You can find me on the all the socials at Lost in Graceland. And This next week, we have an interview tomorrow coming out with Matt Smuckler, the director of the film Wildflower, uh, that is about greenlighting yourself as a creative. And it was super inspiring. And we also got to geek out about movie soundtracks. Callback to Yarrow and his soundtrack. You can find me at Jason Hellerman on Twitter. And now, thanks to Charles Goading over the past three weeks, on Mastodon. (laughs) So <laughs> I'm on all the platforms. You did win. Um, and yeah, comment on our articles. Let us know how you come up with your ideas, mostly because I'm always looking for a new way. And I'm Yaroslav Altunin. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at iyaro87, like iPod and Twitter, but I don't check Twitter. And the song from that last scene of that movie that I wrote uh, was Green Theme by Baroness. And it hits hard. And try to have it play out movie. at the end of the podcast. Oh man, we could we? Is that possible? I'm gonna try. Okay, <laughs> uh, we'll put the link in the bio. And if not, Google it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Link in the out. bio. <laughs>